for March 17th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 298, a requirement for jerk. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here with Pete Fenzel. Hello! I made it into my house, Matt! I made it into my house! I'm so, I'm so glad. It was a long odyssey. Yeah, you, you almost had to do a one-hander as opposed to a two-hander today, because uh, the other hand has to be on the mute button. I mean, you but, joke, but I, last week I started the podcast with a long monologue about my reflections about, um, you know, the uh, 2014 Overthinking It reader survey that we uh, uh, posted in January around, around the time of New Year's. And I have thought what I would do if... If everyone had a conflict and, uh, and you know, I, I was left to record a podcast myself, um, God help us if it ever comes to that. Hopefully we can do what we're doing now and reschedule to, uh, you know, to a different time over the weekend. We're not recording at our usual time for the benefit of the listeners. We usually record podcasts on Sunday night, which we've been doing and has been working for us these five plus years. Um, and uh, has a long and storied tradition. It goes back to the time in college when we used to get together, watch The Simpsons, and write comedy shows for a marching band. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's good, but the dynamics are different. I feel, I feel different than I usually feel sitting down to the podcast. Maybe it's just because I am um, imbibing a different mood-altering substance, right? Like I'm drinking coffee instead of drinking box wine from Trader Joe's. Uh, I wonder if that will make for a different sort of podcast. I don't know, Pete. What do you think? I'm, I'm a bottle and a half into some codeine and promethazine right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> three, three, six mafia style. No, I've actually had like two cafe au lait's because I was hanging out in the coffee shop across from my house waiting for my roommate to get home. Oh, that's, wanna... <laughs> that's the worst because if something stressful happens to you and then you dump a whole bunch of caffeine on top of it, you just start muttering to yourself, yeah. or at least I do that's just yeah. me maybe but seriously thanks my my girlfriend did pick me up and bring her to her place and i was going to record the podcast from her kitchen she was being so nice and generous but then uh my roommate managed to get into the house so because i want to clarify and i want to clarify this this i think is an adequate overthinking of a minor subject before we get to the question of the week i was locked out of my house not because i forgot my keys but because the door to my house malfunctioned and my key was incapable of opening it and this sounds crazy um but it's an old house and it's an old door. But every but I had to tell over the course of the last few hours a couple of different people, including Matt, that I couldn't get into my house. <laughs> and I always felt the need to have to add, I have my keys. Yeah, this no, is no, not me forgetting my keys. Like, um, and it's not. And, and, and just to add, to add even a little bit more. It's not that I feel like people would judge me for forgetting my keys once, but it's that I, I know that I can only forget my keys so many times before people start to judge me, and I don't want to spend those. Like, I want to save those because I intend to forget my keys later. And, or I don't intend to. I presumably will. And I don't want to like, have lost all my forget my keys points on a day that wasn't my fault. Right. You want to bank your, right, you want to bank your points for that kind of thing and not, <laughs> not spend them in case you, in, unless you absolutely have to. God, there's so many things, I wa- so many threads I want to follow up. I definitely want to 
circle back to the idea of your friends judging you, one's friends judging you and, and what that means, judging me and don't judge me and only God can judge me. Uh, like these, these are, um, these are phrases that I've, I've been noticing more something, something about them. I don't think they're being used anymore, but something about them has been popping out to me. And, and as a person who thinks that our capacity for discernment and, you know, skillful judgment is, uh, important, an important thing to exercise. Um, I'm not sure why judging, uh, gets such a bad rap, but I, I, I want to circle back to that. So, so what, what happens is that, I mean, just to set the scene is that you walk up to your door, fish in your pocket for your keys, take them out because you have them because you are not spending your lost my keys points. You, right. you, <laughs> because you don't need to, the keys are there in your hand, put it in the door turn it and nothing happens or the keys don't don't turn yeah you turn i turned it so usually what i have to do is turn the keys to the left and it catches the tumbler turns the tumbler within the lock and the door opens without turning the knob right it's one of those things where the knob is is it's so old that the knob is no longer involved in the mechanism of opening <laughs> the door like you open the door only by the withdrawing of the lock that happens when you pull the key over to the left but i was pulling the key over to the left and hitting the 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 steel or the iron or whatever alloy it is maybe some sort of corundum alloy or something fancy uh no, that the edge of the tumbler and and the whatever mechanism wasn't catching it wasn't turning something wasn't either the pins weren't catching i don't know I'm not a I'm not a master lockpick except in Skyrim. I'm a terrible lockpick in Fallout, and I'm an even worse lockpick in real life. So I had difficulty getting into the uh, getting into the door, and I just knew that something wasn't working. So that's I mean a, a lot of the times with those old old doors that you, that you see in like old houses in the Northeast, they take out all the original hardware and like bolt on some modern lock right on on top of it. And I don't know about the security of that, but it's something that is done. So, uh, but that's not the case here. You're using, um, original, let's call it vintage hardware. Sure. I mean, it's not like a, an iron key with like two prongs sticking off the end that, um, you know, that it like, it zooms in on the keyhole when I use it because there's probably a ghost on the other side. It's not that old, but it's, it's like an old key. Yes. Definitely. An An artisanal vintage lock. Uh, like I could know, I could probably infer more about the alloy that my lock is composed of by virtue of the tarnish that is on the lock, uh-huh. right? I could like analyze that. And be like, oh, there must be some copper in here because there's green notes to the tarnish. So maybe it's got some bronze or something. <laughs> so, uh, what did your roommate do? Just because I'm curious, I'm curious about this story. Uh, well, I don't know, but one thing that I think is the case is I think he was more aggressive with the lock than I was because my landlord has told me not to slam the door because he likes the original hardware of the door and doesn't want it to, to break. Uh, now, this also could be because he doesn't want to pay for a replacement. Uh, but I, I was rather gentle in terms of trying to sort of futz with the lock and get it to open. And I believe my roommate was more aggressive and worked at it for a solid 10 minutes and managed to get it. <laughs> and banged on it. And, and exactly. even the strongest artisanal door uh, will succumb to you banging on it. Yeah, so, I told my roommate that he uses fancier protein powder than I do, so that's how he had the the no explode to get through the door. Yeah. Um, so this is this is interesting. Can we talk about judging people and and judging each other? Do right? we want to do a question of the week eventually? Or no. Well, yeah. I mean, eventually, maybe we can okay. close the podcast with I'm it. Not- <laughs> 
I'm not judging you, Matt. <laughs> only, only God can judge you. Well, but yeah, go ahead. I, I guess so, right? Like, okay, I think a lot of I think a lot of things are true, right? I think it is probably a better spiritual practice not to be judgmental about. Um, not to be judgmental about, you know, non-harmful things that other people do, uh, even if they annoy you or you disagree with them at some level. I suppose it's better to have a, a uh, you know, to, to sort of let go of, of the pettier grievances like that. Um, and I, I certainly think you shouldn't be a dick about it uh, if you do judge someone. Uh, and and what does that mean to judge to judge someone? But like, should aren't aren't we all always judging? I mean, isn't everybody always judging me and judging you and judging each other and judging everybody? Like, is it isn't that like? Are, aren't we always evaluating our sensory perception and uh, drawing conclusions uh, from it? And those conclusions are are judgments. Does I I I mean I I started in on I'm just saying last week, but does don't judge me just mean don't be a jerk? I don't think so. I think there's an extra element to it because when I think about judging, what I think about is authority. So when someone is judging you, someone is exerting an authority over you. They're not it's not just their disapproval. It's that you feel uh, an influence, you feel a power that is trying to persuade you to do to change your behavior. And so when you think about people who have the authority to change your behavior, people like your parents when you're younger, there are different mechanisms that people can use to change your behavior. And then there, there are institutional mechanisms, and then there are informal mechanisms and discursive mechanisms, drink. So, so like if somebody is your boss, then they can tell you to do something, and you probably have to do it, right? I mean, this is the sort of riddle of Varys and the sellsword, you know, Game of Thrones reference and all that, where it's like, you know, power resides where people think it resides. But at the same time, people are willing to admit to certain sorts of, of, pow- of authorities over them. And uh, what judging is, it's what you said. It's a, it's a process that's always happening that's somewhat of a collective authoritative uh, it's a collective authoritative act. I think Edward Gibbon wrote about this in The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire when he wrote about it. I used to have this quote uh, copied and pasted into a, into a Word doc that I kept. Actually, it was a WordPerfect doc that I kept on my computer because it was about – I don't remember it word for word. But it was about how the open windows and doors of the Gothic society preserved sexual fidelity more than all the locked doors and, and guardian eunuchs of Roman society. Huh. Uh, and because it, it was, I thought, I thought it was really interesting. It was about sexual morality and kind of guilt. And uh, I mean, I saw it as, you know, which I think is incorrect, is sort of an insufficient interpretation. But at the time, I saw it as sort of openness creates goodness. Like open it, openness begets goodness. People behave well because they want to behave in front of other people and then they feel good about it. What I didn't think of at the time was people are afraid to do what they want to do when it's wrong because they might be judged by other people. Um, as opposed to they can't do it, like they physically can't do it. And I think that when you say, I don't want you to judge me, part of it is that um, I don't want to be under your authority. I, don't, I, I know that this particular opportunity, because of the way that people are always judging other people, 
puts me under your authority. That if this had not happened, I would for the moment not be under your authority. And, and I kind of relish that independence um, and, and as such would want to preserve it. So I think when someone says only God can judge me, what they're really saying is that like I don't want to be like I – I know that my behavior in the way that the discourses of power works puts me under your authority uh, based on our sort of consensus way of understanding how people influence each other. right? Um, but I don't want that to happen, and so I'm going to like use this – other discursive mechanism, which is the whole sort of Tupac, thug life, belly tattoo way of thinking about the world and influence, right? Which is that, like, there are there are tropes, there are tools within the discourse that you can use to try to resist this sort of mechanism. Right. And, and this is one of them seems to have emerged to fill a need. It's a sort of elaborate, not elaborate, it's a sort of, uh, uh, the, what's the opposite of elaborate? Kind of simplistic Simple. Schopenhauering oh. of your uh, of your op- opponent, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's a judo move that's, that's the, where the subtext is, I... I I am intuiting that you are arrogating yourself, uh, arrogating to yourself a certain amount of authority over me and uh, the right to make normative statements about my behavior. And um, you're a dick for doing that. <laughs> well, you're, yeah, you're basically you're counter-accusing. You're, you know, this, what's that big, uh, the big political uh, consultancy you know, mantra is what, like, admit nothing, deny everything, make counter-accusations? So it's like the best way to avoid blame for someone is to blame the other person for doing a similar thing. Right. Right, yeah, and because it, it, it changes the conversation. So, um, I mean, like, only God can judge me. That is to say, I, I dispute uh, any human authorities uh, claim to make uh, normative statements about my, normative claims about my behavior, uh, is all well and good until April 15th, right? Like, come tax time, um, human authority is going to uh, rear its head and, and tell you a thing or two about your behavior. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't pay their taxes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. Well, it's I just guess... that that particular discursive mechanism is less effective with the IRS than it might be with, like, your friends and relatives. <laughs> 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 you know, thug but, life. Like, well, 1099. But, thug life. 1099. I, I thug want, life. Subpoena. Thug life. wishes. Thug life. <laughs> Frozen assets. Thug life. Prison. Like, <laughs> the progression goes on. Thug life. Like, you know, coming after you. Thug life. Moving moving to Africa. Okay, now we're talking. <laughs> now we're talking, Mr. Snipes. Like, go do what you got. That's not fair because I, that's actually not nice because I used the jump from Tupac to Wesley Snipes because Wesley Snipes is a tax evader, but I'm sure there's like racial dog whistling in there that I didn't intend. But Anyway, um, um, there are plenty. There hey, are hey Pete, only God can judge you. Okay? Only, only God can judge. The thing is now, because the other, the, it is interesting because it goes a level deeper. Like we can inception this, right? Where it's like, <laughs> well, we know that. <laughs> so we know Lord. that the, the trope, the the sort of the discursive tool of. Claiming that the other person should not judge you it has been developed from the necessity of finding a way to counter subjugating yourself under someone else's discursive authority by virtue of your behavior or actions. And that person doesn't have an institutional or status-based power relationship over you, right? So your behavior has lowered your status or lowered your, your influence to the point where someone else presumes control over you. This is a tool that you use when you're trying to counteract that from Yeah, happening. or even, I mean, I think it's deployed also in cases where there is an institutional or status-based mm-hmm. uh, level of control over you. And the, the claim is that that institution uh, or that system of status is illegitimate, 
Yes, yes. So both of those things. But the thing is now, there's sort of a, what it is. Is it's like the, it's a wine in front of me situation. It's like you, if you say only God can judge me in a time where you're actually not being judged, like you've actually not been subaggregated into someone else's or subrogated, whatever the word you used before, into someone else's authority, right? Like. You could say it jokingly, <laughs> like you know, like say say I see you right, and I have a I have a cauliflower in my uh, grocery basket, and I see you at the grocery store, and you say, "Oh, Pete, oh, is that a cauliflower?" And I go, "Only God can judge me." <laughs> right? So, like that, think of the subtext there. It's like um, I'm joking because I know that I'm behaving well, and I'm joking with you that I am behaving better than I would like to behave, <laughs> because I'm eating cauliflower rather than like you know a, a block of Monterey Jack cheese and a bag of gluten-free Oreos or whatever you try to do to rationalize for yourself what you're doing to your body. Um, it's like gluten-free Oreos. Um, so if I were to say for you, if I were to say to you, only God can judge me when I have a cauliflower in my basket, then it's funny. And if I were to say to you, only God can judge me when I have Oreos in my basket, then it's actually kind of defensive and not as funny, right? Like, cause it's like, uh, cause I'm assuming that you, I'm assuming that you are presuming this authority over me, but the, the level deeper is you can tell from the context of the conversation, when I say that, whether I consider myself to be under your authority or not, because of the, the degree to which I'm opposing it, right? And so, um, and this is also a part of how it's, it's kind of a, seen as a day class A thing to do. That's sort of the battle back, right? Is that like, well, to say that is, you know... Not yeah, yeah. To, to sort of mark yourself as trashy in in various, I mean, in you know the aerobics of of you know derision and pejorative uh, uh, terms are strained, right? Like by some of the by some of the things that you're um, some of the kinds of trashiness that you, that you are supposedly marking yourself with when you when you say that. But like, yeah, it's uh, right. It's like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Only God can judge me. Oh, you're so trashy, you know. <laughs> Like, I know that I can judge you because you said that thing that means that I can judge you. Yeah, right. right? It's like, and then it's like, ah, oh, but you can't judge me for that because only God can judge me. And you can't judge me for saying that I said that you can't judge me. Ah, but now you're saying that I can't judge you. But now you've created a, a reduction at absurdum and I can judge you for that. No, only God can judge me for my <laughs> logical fallacies and semiotic shortcomings. And it's like, ah, oh, but, you know, is, does that not appeal to the transcendental signifier that cannot inscribe itself? And thus I can judge you for say you know for and then it goes on and on from there but uh, <laughs> but long story short i agree i agree with you about the kind of the the insecurity the kind of, the insecurity that's that's uh kind of occult within the claim and that it it seems to um uh, uh, you know that that it seems to try to to hide, but that is is sort it's of two always pops there. all the way down is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but but also I'm saying it's also because it's been around for a while because we've had time to perform out these bends in the narrative. Right. I, I'm suspicious of claims of any sort of claim that like. Uh, you know, I I am for whatever reason exempt from the normal you know uh, vagaries and vicissitudes of human interaction, right? That that uh, pass between that pass between people and that that we all ex- that we all experience, you know. Yeah, anybody who says that is is generally not accomplishing the thing that they want to accomplish, because what they really want to do is improve their social influence and standing a lot of the time. I mean, sometimes they want to be controversial and, and provocative and, like, inspire, you know, tension <laughs> and enmity. But sometimes you're thinking, well, I don't want to be held accountable within this sort of framework for my thoughts and actions, but saying that 
it's doesn't it doesn't change it. Just like you were saying before, just you know, I'm not saying or whatever it was I'm just saying. Yeah. It's the same thing. Or like or like saying, you know, uh um with all due respect. <laughs> with all due respect this whole place is a sham and like, with all due respect you know your parents should not be proud of anything you've accomplished in your life and probably cry themselves to sleep with all due respect right like <laughs> uh yeah um d- d- all due respect is an interesting one because of the word do right yeah. uh it's and it, it's uh any let's not let's not get into it i mean i i uh the interesting thing to me about um i'm just saying is is the the tension between what it means literally and what we all know it actually means which is that i want to disassociate myself from the implications of my own statement yes right like or uh or um I, I want to disassociate myself uh, from the consequences of my dickish statement, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because, uh, uh, you know, I'm just saying, um, but I'm judging you. I'm just saying. I'm judging <laughs> so, you. So speaking of things that people might want to distance themselves from, <laughs> um, this weekend, Need for Speed came out. Oh, that's Aaron good. Are you, are you trying to segue me, Pete? Are you trying to... Are you trying to enforce? You know what? Only God can segue me. <laughs> uh, yeah, Need for Speed is, or as I like to call it, Breaking Fast and Breaking Furious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, because it's got Breaking Bad's Aaron Paul in a video game movie. And, but the video game movie, I, I don't know the, the video game. but um, It's a car driving game. I, I gather that I've much. I've never played it. I don't think that we miss anything. I'm sure it's a fine video game. Sure. I mean, uh, breaking crazy, breaking taxi, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so, uh, you know, but it, it strikes me as being, at least in, in the trailers that I've seen, a lot like fast and uh, fast and furious or the 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 fast and the furious um series of films right because it involves cars and driving fast and tricks in cars and some level of criminality uh and there uh, and uh you know and green so grass in other words, grows all around very, all around it's very good at missing the point of the fast and furious movies <laughs> which are in fact not about cars and criminality but are about cultural diversity ad hoc families and interpersonal relationships right right like like i don't think i mean i guess looking at the at the list of the cast there's a little bit of diversity in it but i did not see a ton of diversity in the commercials and uh in that sense it sort of misses it misses one of the big points of the fast and the furious which it is it is the superhero movie for for the new face of America. Like that is what the Fast and the Furious is, and it's you know that's why all the song that's why Don Omar is on every soundtrack, right? Like like the soundtracks the Fast and the Furious movies have a ton of reggaeton and hip hop on them, uh, and are sold as opposed to the soundtracks of other movies which are often not sold and have less reggaeton. But um, I don't know. I, I I remember when I first saw the trailers for this movie, I thought, yeah, this is trying to cash in on the Fast and the Furious, and it's going to be unsuccessful because it's all white people. Uh, and not only is it all white people, but it looks they all look too rich like it, the, the cars are the cars are fancier and and there 's helicopters and, and yet it 's true they do have those things in the fast and the Furious also but there 's a really big difference between a souped up Honda Civic and like an actual Ferrari right like in terms of uh, what it 's signaling to who this is supposed to identify with um, 
but but we brought it up because it was going to be our question of the week. Like we didn't see this movie, we didn't want it to be like our general large topic of conversation. Oh no, we wanted to talk not. about me. My, my key's not working. That was <laughs> that was the topic of the uh, <laughs> that was the topic of the podcast. Well, I mean, we were supposed to podcast. I I love that. Like you know, this being overthinking it. We live in an uh, uh, like an Abed like elaborately constructed world of the imagination and the a you know uh, a giant discursive palace of of ideas and and uh inspiration and um and then your keys don't work and you know and and life reminds you that you're made of meat you know yeah it's especially poignant now because uh because now we have so many tools that let us get around so many of the familiar inconveniences of our pre-smartphone days such as you know i went out to meet my friends but then they couldn't make it Right, like, and it's like they have no way of telling me, right? Or like, you know, I can't. I sat at the bar for forty-five minutes wondering where the f is everybody. Exactly. No, that doesn't happen anymore. No, no, not as much. I mean, it it can if you're a particular sort of sad sack, and or if you're very unlucky. But, but like, it's also something now you do to yourself because you have all these other options and all this power. But you know, lock technology has not made the same bounds and leaps and bounds that social media has made. Well, I'm sure there. Yes, I'm sure there are like smartphone enabled locks, but you can't uh, you can't install them on an artisanal door. That's true. Um, but it's more like when you encounter things like this, when you're so used to every rough edge being smoothed over. Um, you know, then it, it, there's, there's something about the triviality of it, too, that's particularly compelling. Like how little it matters. Uh, how little you would think about your key not working in the lock as, as an issue. Yeah, right. This is the kind of thing that Sheely would take issue with because somebody would refer to it as a first world problem. Hashtag, yeah, I was about to say, hashtag first world yeah. problems. Hashtag, am I right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Someone referred to it as a first world problem, but really this would also be a third world problem, and the difference between the first world and third world approach is the third world person would fix it. <laughs> like, and the first world person would just like sit there and be like, oh, I can't get into my house. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly, the first world. And, and for that reason, it's actually a lot more emotionally disturbing, right? Like, when you think of problems as being, you know, related to your intrinsic worth as a being, uh, they're actually much harder than problems that, you know, require solutions. Yes. Right. They're 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 actually a, a, the experience of of undergoing them. Right. Like the experience of undergoing sort of existential doubt and uh, this sort this sort of thing is is a lot more difficult than undergoing like okay how can I how can I get into my house? I mean, let me give you an example of when I was uh, I was locked out of my house because I think uh, my girlfriend and I mixed up the keys uh, or something or or I spent one of my uh, uh, lost my keys points and locked myself out of the uh, locked myself out of the apartment when I left, um, I was pissed off for an hour, right, and stomped around, and then I got industrious and found a way to break into my own apartment <laughs> that involved climbing up a story onto a balcony, and uh, I, actually, I shouldn't give too many details, but like using uh, using objects that I found in the environment around me to uh, to uh, gain access to my to my apartment uh, to unlock things without actually having having the keys to them, and that process took about you know six and a half minutes. Right once I was done stomping around, like going to the wine bar down the street and having a drink and feeling sorry for myself, the actual uh, solving of the the problem was sort of sort of trivial but it doesn't feel trivial right like the the emotional experience of a first world problem doesn't doesn't feel trivial and i guess we've talked to death uh the idea of first world problems and the fact that there's no absolute scale on which these things are are judged after all 
yeah, I mean, whatever. People don't even people don't even remember what all that stuff means anymore. What's first world? What's second world? What's third world? All that nonsense. Yeah, sure. I yeah, mean, is there just, yeah. is there a second world anymore? Uh, sure. Uh, parts of not not much of China, not much of Russia. <laughs> I think Mongolia is still second world. Huh. I'm trying. I think Kazakhstan is probably the close to a to a second world country now, right? Because sec- or Belarus maybe Belarus probably because that's like sort of neo neo authoritarian, right? Because you know the second world is is you know Marxist Leninist communism. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's. I guess the, I mean none of those places. Kazakhstan still has the Samar and Sickle on its flag, I believe. Um, which is I'm going to check that uh, so that we don't get any angry letters from our fans in Kazakhstan because Eurovision is coming up, and you know that they're going to be uh, they're going to be watching. We're talking. Um, we're talking about what we're going to do for Eurovision. By the way, we got some. We got some uh, like tweets and emails, and it was actually very exciting to see that people are like looking forward to overthinking its coverage of Eurovision. I'm not going to lie. Last year was hard. Like it was hard to produce that much content uh, at the pretty high level of quality that we that we had uh, in that short of time. In that short of time, um, we could. So I mean, we could do a poopy job. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that actually may be the strategy that we elect. Yeah, um, Kazakhstan doesn't have the Heimer sickle on its flag. I don't know what I was talking about. Right. I think that there's there was something else. But yeah, no, we, we. I mean, people. There were people all over the world who had gotten used to making fun of our Eurovision coverage. <laughs> so Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, so the question of the week in honor of uh, uh I, w- I was gonna say like you know speaking of people who experience existential despair and dread after making a life decision <laughs> like aaron paul was a need for speed <laughs> this weekend um yeah uh, so um so uh, in honor of too needy too speedy uh the um the question of the week is this if a uh if the number two lead from a golden age of television uh, show were to uh, appear in a film uh, remake of a video game or a film adaptation of a video game that bore an uncomfortable resemblance to an already existing pop culture property. <laughs> <laughs> only on the Overthinking It podcast, uh, dear listener, do you you know um, get <laughs> valuable insight like this. I'm going to say that again. If the number two lead from a golden age of television uh, prestige show were to appear in a film adaptation of a video game that bore an uncanny resemblance to an already extant pop culture property, uh, what would it, who would it be, and what would it be? And tell us something about it. First in the alphabet. <laughs> I feel like we may have to do a bunch of these because this question is too good to waste. It's also I feel like we also kind of have to workshop the ideas because it's going to be difficult for us to be saying ones that fit exactly. But anyway, please introduce me, Matt, so that the <laughs> listeners may come to know who I am and why I am here. Drink. <laughs> Finish your coffee. Brew another AeroPress because it's Pete Fenzel. Okay, so my first idea... Um, Hi, was, Pete. <laughs> hello. How are you doing, Matt? Hey, it's great to talk to you here on Sunday night. Likewise. I'm glad I got into my house without any problems. So <laughs> I just have in my head. So one, of the, so one of the great video game adaptation franchises is Resident Evil. 
Right, and it's it's uh, there's so many movies that's and basically it's like number the stars. It's like was that Abraham <laughs> says to Abraham, your children will will be number number the stars, and of course that becomes very poignant with with uh, Ellie Wiesel and talking about the Holocaust and all that stuff. And we won't go down that road, but I will say there are a lot of Resident Evil movies, <laughs> and so uh, and Mila Jovovich has been in all of them. And so I was thinking, so I was thinking, okay, who are the people in the prestige TV shows that I would want to see in these kinds of movies, and um, or we want to see in a movie, and I thought of Christina Hendricks or or of um, Kate. Uh, gosh, I wanted to say Kate Moss, Elizabeth Moss from yeah. that, and 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 putting them in like a. And I was thinking, well, what video game would they be in? And I was like, oh, it would be like a, like Resident Evil, but they've already done a bunch of Resident Evil movies. And then what I thought, and this idea, I'm sticking with it, is you get Edie Falco, the number two lead of The Sopranos. Uh-huh. Uh, and you get her to be in a Luigi's Mansion movie. Huh. I like Resident Evil. Um, I don't know if you guys remember Luigi's Mansion. Uh, the idea of it would be offensive because she obviously she plays an Italian stereotype in all of her uh, in all of her A list Golden Age of Television show roles, but um, which is why it would fit. But no, those of you, do you have you ever played Luigi's Mansion? Matt? No, I I was never really good at video games, so my my video game days ended, I think, with the Super Nintendo. Oh, okay. Uh, so, because so I don't I don't enjoy things that I'm not already good at. I don't like acquiring new skills and practicing them. That's that's great. I'm I'm glad. I'm not that's great. But I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that the paleo diet got in under the wire. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so Luigi's Mansion is a it was a launch game for the GameCube, and is a Nintendo game, obviously, and it was a parody to an extent of survival horror games like Resident Evil, uh, where every time Luigi op- every time you opened a door in Resident Evil, they would they would sort of hide the loading of the room by doing a really creepy zoom in on the door, right, and then the door would open and it would be very atmospheric. In Luigi's Mansion, they do the zoom in on the door handle, and Luigi's like white gloved hand with its like plump, two not numerous enough fingers like reaches out. Maybe he has enough fingers. He's not Mickey Mouse. But, like reaches out, shaking and like turns the doorknob in a very self conscious way. And Luigi is always going Mario, Mario, because he's like running around the the mansion looking for Mario. So maybe no, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not Edie Falco who's in Luigi's Mansion because that's weird. Because then she has to dress in drag. Well, that would kind of up the camp factor. But maybe it's um. The the Van Sant guy, the guy who's in Lilyhammer, the guy who's in the E Street Band, uh, Steve e, Steve, Van, Steve Van, Sant. Van Sant. I always confuse confuse him with the uh, the other two Van Sants, which are also not related. Gus right? Gus Van Sant, director of Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, yeah, and then I think the lead singer of Leonard Skinner, right? Um, let me see who died in that horrible plane crash. Whose name is? Johnny Van Sant. Johnny Van Sant. It's quite a quite a clan they've got there all over the place. <laughs> Don't think that they're necessarily related, but yeah. But actually, he could do it. He could do a great Luigi's Mansion, or like uh, maybe Pauly. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's one idea. That's one idea. Do you okay. Have, do you have a second idea? Matt I was Rath? gonna go. I was gonna go Princess Peach as well. Uh, uh, right. So my 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 idea was you take Elizabeth Moss, the number two lead from Mad Men. And you have her play Princess Peach, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's during the period of her captivity by Bowser. Okay, and it's animated. It's an animated musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
that bears a resemblance to Frozen about a uh, about a, um, a, g- a princess locked up in a in a castle who who can't come out and uh, and Elizabeth Moss plays uh, Princess Peach and does um, does her own singing in in the thing and there there would be a song that 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 would have to be like let it go I don't know what it's uh, I don't know what it's it's called. Maybe we can workshop this a little bit together. the the song that she, the, the song that she sings about sort of getting over her, getting over uh, you know freeing herself from the castle within. Doesn't she like bake a cake whenever Mario wins? Well, she went and makes a cake when Mario wins. See, okay. So so before I go too deep into that one idea, as you were saying it, I thought you know what, Peach. Peach is in, gets kind of a raw deal in all the Mario games where she's kidnapped. Why not have, if Elizabeth Moss is going to play Peach, which is not terrible casting, I want to see Elizabeth Moss, pl- Moss play Peach in a Mario Kart movie. Uh-huh. In a movie where she like, has to, like <laughs> where she has to drive a go kart uh, like superiorly to all of the other <laughs> Mario characters, like she has to beat her boyfriend, her boyfriend's brother, uh, a giant. Uh, semi-intelligent ape, uh, a dinosaur, uh, a, a human mushroom, a dragon, um, and then also a an evil doppelgangers of both her boyfriend and her boyfriend's brother with uh, Waz in front of their name in a series of fantastical go-kart races, which would be much like the Wachowski brothers' speed racer. It would all happen in fantastical environments. Like, the Rainbow Road would be, would be very much like that big scene from Speed Racer. And of course, that movie was terribly successful. So, uh, so I think that's a good... Or you could also do her in Mario soccer, and then it could sort of be like um, like Miracle, because they could be like beating the Soviet Union. You get Kurt Russell in there as, as uh, the coach. Who's the coach in Mario soccer? I don't even know. Is it Lakitu? I don't think so. Lakitu might be the referee. But <laughs> Mario Tennis. <laughs> but I was also thinking, the thing about Need for Speed is it's like, I'm aware of it, um, but I'm not aware of the broad narrative strokes of it. And I feel like that's the case for many people who haven't played it, which is rare for prominent video game franchises and part of what makes this movie so funny. Because it's hard for me, like when I think about this question, I think about video game franchises that have a narrative that I can grasp. And, it, and I want to think about, it, it, the, fun, the funny one would be to take somebody like, um, gosh, like, like uh, Omar from The Wire and put him in like... I mean, I don't want to say like Sid Meier's Civilization because that also is too much of a narrative. But like, uh, not like I guess like Tetris maybe. Uh, if you made a Tetris movie, Fruit, no, that Fruit Ninja. Sense. Fruit Ninja, I guess. Ooh, maybe I want to be the guy. Fruit Ninja would actually be a pretty good one. That that's actually perfect because I think Fruit Ninja is um, or Super Meat Boy, huh. maybe Super Meat Boy. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe we get. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of other Golden Age of Television properties that would fit right in. Um, we get Ron Perlman from Sons of Anarchy. That's not really a shield nature television. Sure. Um, yeah, you get a, you get Shane Vendrell from The Shield, Walton Goggins. I was going to say, like, like wait, I guess he was this. I guess he was the number two lead by the end of the show. Earlier on, it was probably. I mean, I, I want to give CCH Pounder a lot of credit for that show, but I guess that's not the right person. It was probably the the, the Hispanic chief, right, from The Shield, who was also in House of Cards. Sure, David um, David Acevedo was the name of the character. Yeah, and David Acevedo. I think who's the is the actor Benito Martinez. Uh, yes, it is Benito Martinez. So, what would Benito Martinez be in? He could be an XCOM. Uh huh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking about what other games. What he does. Like, I, yeah, he does have. I mean, he's what? He's a senator. He's a Republican senator in um, in House of Cards, and he is. Uh, 
uh, a police chief. He he did a couple. Uh, I think he, he was a yellow shirt. I think a couple times in um, Star Trek. The next generation. And so he has this, he has this sort of official or sort of mili- military or quasi-military uh, sort of clean-cut, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of quality to him that, that gets him uh, roles in all of these sort of official, uh, official parts. Yeah. So it would have to be something, I mean, it would have to be a game that has like a military military thing you know are uh, are there movies of uh like uh the modern warfare series or um... i mean maybe that's fine i mean uh, you know what just occurred to me is that benito martinez projects authority in such a way that you could be like only god can judge me or also maybe benito martinez <laughs> right like, it's like that might also be part of it it might be to go back to what we were talking about before maybe it's not just i don't want to be subject subjugate under your authority maybe it's that you don't project and i'm not speaking about anyone in particular i'm speaking about this phrase in general you don't project the kind of status that makes me want to accept your authority over me like maybe this is an issue of charisma as much as it is one's about institutionality sure um and you have to be able to act like somebody who judges people um and benito martinez does that in most of his roles right like in uh in outbreak <laughs> yeah we talked about review culture uh what a couple podcasts ago or or one or two. Oh no sorry it was in God, there are so many. We record so much talky talky that it all kind of runs together at a certain point. It was um, it was on the community uh, recap podcast, and, and we talked about the Meow Meow Beans episode of Community, where people rate each other in real time uh, using one to five Meow Meow Beans, and your social status is determined by the number of Meow Meow Beans you have at any given time, and um, and it's also a parody of Logan's Run. Uh, why would anybody not love community? So, so, <laughs> uh, so we talked about we talked about review culture a little bit, and I th- I think there's something about the way like the way commu- consumer culture has taken a, a turn, where like the the constant message from the marketing of everything is like, no, you you really are that important. You know, to us, right? You really are uh, a god, right? Hurry up with my my damn massage. Uh, hurry up with my damn croissants. I write like um, uh, not just Kanye, but everyone. Uh, you know, really is sort of really is sort of a god. And I, I wonder if that that is. Uh, I wonder if that has sort of affected our thinking about our lives and and about one another. Right? The the idea, the the sort of message, the the that is kind of an advertising and marketing message because it's associated with selling products that. No, no, no! You shouldn't have any any frustrations in your life, and and things should be the way you want them. Sort of ultra customized, and you know, ultra uh, niche marketed to you. I don't know. Is I mean, this that's only, a rattle? That's only said to certain people. That's not said to everybody. That's mostly said to rich people because what you're doing when you say that is you're trying to charge them a premium for a good or service. It's like you don't deserve to. You're too good to think about how much this costs, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's a lot of the time what they're saying. It's like the new Acura, 
<laughs> you're you're a superior human being who doesn't look at sticker prices, right? Like it's uh yeah, but it's also I mean you know it's also you, your way right away at Burger King now. But they don't know? do that anymore. Oh no, that's now it's like now it's like the plastic the plastic monarch is going to terrorize your family. Sure, but that doesn't I mean like just because they've changed ad agencies doesn't mean that they've you know repudiated every ad message they ever. No, no, I'm not, I guess it all is all part of the I, it is all part of the discourse. But I do wonder whether maybe. Maybe that's a little bit of an older message, and maybe the more contemporary message is like, you know, is about sort of like connection and people and like people making a difference in each other's lives, you know, and like, um, I'm, I don't know, I'm trying to think about like when we talked about all the we've talked about the Super Bowl ads a bunch of times and how they've sort of drifted in a variety of different directions about kind of trying to sympathize with the difficulties that people have had, um, or not trying to sympathize, but trying to build a brand message of apparent sympathy. <laughs> challenges that people have been having in their lives since the financial crisis, and also the challenges that the baby boomers are having as they get older. Right, like the, the idea of the God Made a Farmer ad from, yeah. from year before last, or year before this one. Which is it, also like, you are the hero, but only if you're a farmer. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, 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 invi- it, it invites you to cast yourself mentally in the role of a farmer and realize that your struggles uh, are in fact ennobling, right? Like, uh, Ooh. we can put uh, Elizabeth <laughs> a Farmville movie. Oh, there it is. <laughs> totally. Or we could put. Uh, we can make um, Steve Buscemi from Boardwalk Empire. Although he's the number one lead, we can make him a voice of an Angry Bird easily enough. Like that thing writes itself. <laughs> but <laughs> cast cast aside Gilbert Gottfried as uh, in doing his Iago voice from Aladdin. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, cell phone games were a whole other area I hadn't even considered in our original question. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, given the success of Battleship, we'll probably see we'll probably see a lot of those. Wait, what? Battleship's not a cell phone game. I no, mean, I yeah, guess- I mean, given the success of Battleship, my my point is that it's a downward trend in toys, right? Like from uh, fr- from the golden age of. Uh, I don't know the the Transformers movie or the Lego movie, right? To and I realize this is not chronological. Bear with me. To the the Bronze Age of the uh, of Battleship into an Iron Age of I don't know what Farmville and and as long, as, you know what? Can we go down another side rat hole for a second? As sure. long as we got the time, <laughs> because you brought up Hasbro property, right? A Hasbro property, Battleship is owned by Hasbro. Hasbro made a big contract uh, to give rights to a bunch of its various intellectual property things to the movie studio to make movies about stuff. Have you, and I know occasionally on this podcast, I have talked about the culture of Magic the Gathering uh, because it's something I've been involved in in a variety of ways over the years. Have you kept up with the big Magic the Gathering news over the course of the last couple no, of weeks? No, Pete, but I would love it if you could uh, orient a non-specialist layman to the current state of the Magic the Gathering well, there is, world. There was a particularly scandalous thing that happened in Magic the Gathering a week or two ago. Um, And I'm going to get a lot of the details wrong, so I'll speak kind of vaguely. So it was the biggest Magic the Gathering tournament that's happened either in North America or ever in general. And it happened in the city of Richmond, Virginia. uh, Grand Prix Richmond. Richmond, by the way, is also, uh, not insignificantly and not irrelevantly to the story, the second most obese city 
in the country after Memphis, Tennessee. There are real problems with access to food and with people being unhealthy and stuff like that in Richmond, Virginia. So, and Magic the Gathering players, especially in large tournament environments, are, are there is a stereotype of poor self-care, of poor grooming, poor hygiene, which is something that is a great top, greatly a topic of conversation among people who are involved with the game, something that people are uncomfortable about, and the, the, basically the two sides of it are, on one hand, it would really be nice if people would show some care for themselves because it's really embarrassing when you walk into one of these places and it smells bad or people look gross. And the other hand, it's like, these are people who have come to us, to this community, looking for acceptance, looking for, they've had difficulty finding other places to get along with people. This is something they love. Let's not act superior and nasty to people. Let's be accepting if we're going to encourage people to deal with these sorts of problems that they might have or might not have based on whether this is a stereotype or reality. Like, let's do it in a positive way, right? So these are like the two sides of it. But it's an issue that has remained more or less un progressed upon over the years like there's been various like people saying okay i'm gonna i'm gonna like and the top tier players tend to be very uh very well groomed but it's like from the sort of the people who are obsessed with the game but aren't really obsessed with like being on camera um are often very poorly groomed and so uh what this guy did at at crampy richmond is he kind of forced the issue after a fashion or at least forced some very unfortunate public attention on it um, and this is, this is funny because people might have thought I was talking about something else that was also a big scandal that also has to do with Magic the Gathering that happened, of course, last week, a couple weeks. But what he did is he went around Grand P. Richmond, and this is himself a very unhealthy-looking man um, who with a big scraggly beard and doesn't really look all that well put together. But he would squat down behind players who had very obviously showing butt cracks, and he, and he would make like a little prayer motion with his hands and a, and a photo album of like – 20 of these guys like you know just like more than well over a dozen if not two dozen uh people in this in this environment playing this game all had their butts hanging out of their pants and it was the and this this thing made the rounds various you know first it was on uh i think it was first on reddit first it was just on the magic the gathering subreddit then it was on reddit in general then it kind of like got picked up by like the Huffington Post or Gawker or something, and it was making the rounds around the internet. And now he's like putting this guy next to people's pictures of people's butts has become somewhat of a meme uh, and so forth. And so this is, of course, very troubling to people who are invested in the, in the culture of Magic the Gathering because it's, it's first of all, the, the, the one criticism that's leveled this guy that I think is the most sort of like sad criticism is like, this was a wrong thing for this guy to do. And this was bad, right? Um, and that's true. You know, it was nasty. And, and it's funny because we also had a scandal here in Massachusetts a week or two ago where uh, there was, like, the, the, one of the courts handed down a decision that the law that a legislator had passed against photographing up women's skirts on the subway, right, was, like, it, that law, like, wasn't protective enough. So this guy had been photographing up women's skirts on the subway was going to get off, not to get off, but he was going to, like, not be sufficiently punished because the legislator had written a bad law. Right, and they and they challenged the legislature to write a new law against upskirting, right? Which is like you know the public photography of people who are dressed, but in such a way that it compromises their um, what I think they refer to as their sexual or delicate parts or something, right? And so this guy's going around basically like upskirting these dudes from the back, um, and that would have been illegal in Massachusetts, but of course it, you know, in this environment nobody thinks about these people's rights to not have their butts photographed. Sure. Um, but anyway, anyway, it's, it's interesting. It's like this is bad. Like this guy should not have done this. And it's like okay, the reason this is a sad criticism is like the cat's out of the bag, right? Like the damage has is done. Like peep, it is out there right now that. 
they, you go to a Magic the Gathering tournament and there will be like 20 dudes with their butts hanging out of their pants. Right, and this is like something that is just gonna be. This is like something that's now associated with going to these tournaments. Uh, that's like a big brand problem for the game, but it's out there. Like you're not going to solve this problem by blaming this guy and saying he shouldn't have done it, right? Like the time that this is the thing. This is my feeling about it. There was a time where this issue needed to be dealt with in some sort of way, and the conversation happened. Like pe- this is one of you know whenever a political thing happens and people go, we need to have a real conversation about. This. Like, we need to have time for us all to sit down and have a serious conversation about this issue. The conversation happened and nothing happened. There was no progress. Nothing changed. Um, and because nothing changed, eventually it's a ticking clock that you're going to have these sorts of risks that happen. Um, I mean, I think companies experience this, governments experience this, where it's like, you can't, you, you got to have a little bit of foresight as to what are your sort of social media vulnerabilities because you cannot hide these things and you cannot stop these things from getting out uh, by attempting to through, as we said before, these aerobics of derision, through the mechanisms of discourse, trying to force your contemporaries and induce your contemporaries to only say nice things. I mean, I've gone really fast, but just to slow that down a little bit, there's a social control, informal social control mechanism that I think we all encounter from time to time, which says we should all be positive. Right, and then we shouldn't air our dirty laundry. We shouldn't right. say no. N- I mean, it goes by the you know the slogan "No haters," right? Yes, yes, and it's great. I mean, I'm all in favor of it, but it's not in up to speed with the realities of the modern social media environment, where things where social media is predominantly negative, and where things that get out on social media, the negativity of them is going to be greatly magnified, and and okay. Us in our own community staying positive about this thing, um, yeah, there's a place for that in this whole discourse, but at some point we have to deal with the risk of these sorts of things becoming big issues. Uh, And so if we have a vulnerability, we should perhaps try to anticipate it and deal with it ahead of time. Um, but I think it's an interesting case. I mean, because the guy, I mean, there were rumors that he was suspended or he wasn't suspended, but I don't really think that any particular punishment levied on him is going to matter. Um, I don't see any response to this that's sort of like, hey, everybody pull your pants up, right? Because the same problems that prevented this from hap- being fixed before are still there. Um, uh, but it's, I mean, does this provoke any thoughts from you, Matt? This well, it whole, does. Like- I mean, the, the idea, it's related to the to the only God can judge me discourse, from before, right? Like th- there, there are words, there are new words that you know our our, our friends, the right thinking progressives, uh, have for different kinds of normative claims uh, about people, you know. And some of them have to do with like health and body size, and and the criticisms around that, and and others of them have to do with with other things. And I've always had a problem with these. Um, uh, I've always had a problem with these uh, uh, with these terms um, because they're with uh, and I, I don't know. Do, am I being too squeamish by not wanting to like call out uh, particular particular ones? No, no, no. We don't have to make examples. Just keep on going. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always been uncomfortable with because we are we are part of this group of people that we are criticizing. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. It's not. Yeah. Um, 
You know, I heard, here's a rat hole. I heard uh, a, an interview with, with uh, Merlin Mann, who I still listen to, who I still follow for some reason. And the, well, no, because he, he's funny and entertaining. Um, and, and he was talking about, about what he does in the sort of, uh, you know, uh, knowledge worker self-help and sort of knowledge worker productivity uh, racket that he's in. And, and he said flippantly in this interview, well, if, if you really are a good self-help person and have uh, the answer, like, why do you have 10 books about it? You know, why, it wasn't the first book right. I mean, wasn't the first book enough? Why do you, why do you have 10? And he's talking about exposing the cynical uh, underbelly of sort of selling people things by, by what, convincing them of their, of their brokenness and uh, that, that this is um, not a laudable activity. And I think that's fine, but I think that there's another, there's another level, uh, there's another level to it in which, like, um, you know, look, life, life is an unsolvable problem. There, there, you know, there's one solution to life and you're not going to like it. And, uh, <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and we're in, um, by the way, that, that solution is need for speed starring Aaron Paul. <laughs> uh, the, um, you know, and, and like, there is no, the, the, there is no, there is no answer. And there's just, uh, more and less interesting ways, um, of engaging with the question, right? Like, so, so when we talk about these things and overthinking it, we're not exempting ourselves and we are not, uh, we are not arrogating to ourselves the authority to say that, that this is wrong or that we're, we're better than this, right? Arrogating like, is the word I was looking for. Oh, okay. right. Yeah. 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 Yes. We are not, arro- we are not arrogating, we are not arrogantly, you know, uh, saying that we have the, the authority to, to, you know, make you wrong or make, make anybody else wrong. But we do want to talk about the dynamics of, of these things. And this is the problem I have with, with the, the new vocabulary of pejorative terms um, about being insufficiently sensitive to uh, all manner of difference and otherness, right? Um, You're talking about, like, fat shaming. And I didn't want to call that out specifically. Okay, I'll, I'll do it just so that the word is out there. Okay, cool. But, but, there, but that is an example of a, uh, of a vocabulary uh, of terms de- deployed by people for you know many reasons, some of them laudable, uh, yeah. in the face of um, perceived injustice, right? Yeah. And so let's we're stepping back from the specific issue, which is more complicated, and we could get lost in that rabbit hole. But let's step back from the specific issue of health and body image in that one respect to the larger discursive issue of kind of terminological shaming of those kinds of judgments. Right. Um, And, and the, the problem to me with those, all of those terms, um, it's not that necessarily that they're wrong when they're deployed, but that they are conversation stoppers, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a way of shutting down, uh, dialogue as as much as, and actually deploying shame right in order to shut down a dialogue as much of uh, uh, <laughs> as any of the perceived injustices that it's it's supposed to correct right like there is a a discourse about health and body image that you know maybe the magic the gathering community needs to have and and I think maybe uh, you know America more generally needs needs yeah. to have and you know I, what it could do without the word neckbeard perhaps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that, you know, it, it, yes, it's probably uh, not productive, right, to be 
to be a jerk to people about the way they look. You know, that's probably doesn't help the people and it probably doesn't help the society. And, you know, though it may make you feel better because you can, uh, you know, knock people and, and, you know, you feel pretty bad about yourself. Not you, Pete, but one feels pretty bad about oneself most of the time. Oh, no, I feel pretty bad about myself (laughs) because I couldn't get into my house because the lock was broken. Right, because obviously, right, of course, obviously the the, the, uh, broken door, uh, the broken lock on the door is your fault. Um, My shame knows no bounds. (laughs) Absolutely. I, uh, you know, I don't know. I think shame is very useful um, emotion because it tells me that, yeah, my life is functioning normally and that all is, uh, all is probably well um, if I feel bad about myself about any number so, of things. So, so, so let, me, let me see if I understand what you're saying. So on one, on one hand, yes, um, we do not want to be negative again. If we are trying to deal with like a behavioral problem or some sort of other kind of issue that is affecting all, us all, we don't want to necessarily approach it by being nasty to people who we might be asking for help from. Certainly not. Right. But on the other hand, we also don't want to storm into the conversation and shame the people who might potentially or are being nasty to those other people. We don't want to do the sort of meta shame. Like the second degree shame stops anything from happening. Right. Right. And so there's a problem there where if the second degree, if the sort of like the integral, if, if like the integral of D shame DX, right? Like is, is uh, <laughs> you know, is, is, uh, is, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is D2 shame over DX2. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so if we're in that, if we're in that sort of like Riemann sum area under the curve of shaming, um, we, you know, applying that shame too liberally can be just as, just as destructive, if not more so to the general conversation as, as the first, as like uh, base, the base shame equation or the derivative of shame, which is shame celebration or shame lossity. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the third, the, what's the third derivative of position with respect to time? I think it's jerk. You know, <laughs> and that's so, right. It's position, velocity, acceleration, jerk. Yep. Yeah. Uh, if you're, uh, and you know, if you are operating at the level of jerk, you know, I mean, it, it, it's jerk shaming. You know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what we want to 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 avoid. And and again, my my problem is not necessarily that it's wrong. It's that it's not helpful, right? Like, look, I don't want people to be a jerk about uh, you know about shaming people for their differences. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to be a jerk to those people, but I, I because it's not going to it's not going to shut them up, you know. It it's not going to make it doesn't make anything better. Uh, t- t- doesn't make anything better it, to point out that someone's wrong, I or mean, just merely to point out that someone's wrong. To, to play devil's that. advocate on this, and not necessarily that I believe this, but you know maybe the goal of these sorts of statements is not. Uh, to counteract the effect that these people are having, but to accomplish something else. Uh, so one thing I would think of is like check your privilege, right? So if you have a group of people, <laughs> I like are... that. I like the disgusted mutter with which yeah. that phrase uh, uh, emerged from your mouth. So yeah, so it's like, what if one person is? So someone says, "Oh man, uh, you know, I 
I, I, I can't I, – I, I, I had to go and like sell my food stamps. I had to sell my nutritional assistance to get cash so that I could buy cigarettes. And someone says like, you are a waste and you are a terrible drag on society. And someone says, check your privilege right to that, to that, first, to that second person. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that the person saying check your privilege is really like, – in terms of the outcomes that are going to be produced, going to make that first person more comfortable using – like exchanging their nutritional assistance for cigarettes. The goal is not to help the person who is not, it's not necessarily an, an my enemy's enemy is my friend situation. Uh, <laughs> I, w- I was dealing, I was talking about this in terms of, uh, oh, cause uh, the St. Patrick's day parade is happening in Boston. Um, this this weekend, and something really interesting happened with the St. Patrick's Day Parade, where, as you may know, the people who organize the St. Patrick's Day Parade um, have banned gay groups from marching. As people may not know and are often not aware of, they also talk a lot of trash about gay people, the people who organize the parade, which exacerbates the situation. So it's not just that gay people can't march. It's that they also say things like they're you know, abominations and all this other stuff. Uh, they won a Supreme Court case giving them the right to decide who marches in the parade, which is why, despite the fact that every year it's a big pain in the butt, they continue to do this. And so um, they, there was a big, because we have a new mayor this year, there was a big new push to try to get gay people to march in the parade, and the group denied it again. And, and what happened, which is interesting, is that Sam Adams, the Boston Beer Company, pulled out of sponsoring the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Right, uh, in protest of the parade organizers not letting gay people march. Now, um, I, and I know I know this angle of it because of people I know who, who participated in this. My own take on it is that, uh, based on what I've heard, because I know this was happening, is individual people were calling and emailing the gay clubs in Boston and asking them to pull Sam Adams and not serve it anymore, um, uh, because Sam Adams sponsored the openly nasty anti-gay. St. Patrick's Day Parade, right? And so this, ha- and what happened was the one of the big gay clubs in the South End of Boston stopped serving Sam Adams like two days ago, like in, at night. Two days ago, they're like, we're not going to serve Sam Adams anymore. The neck, and at the time, Sam Adams released a statement. You know, the Boston Beer Company was like, we do a lot of things for the LGBT community. We we try to serve all sorts of different kinds of people. That's why we sponsor St. Patrick's Day Parade. That's why we do all this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. The next morning, they pulled out of sponsorship of the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And I, I, I really do believe that it was because they recognized the risk associated with all these gay clubs pulling out uh, of, of, of selling Sam Adams. Now, why is this relevant to what I just said? Because... The idea of a, finding a target. I think that the value of a target in this social media, political, economic environment is underappreciated as a thing that people search for. So if you are trying to organize a group of people to do a thing and to imbue your particular movement with power, it helps to have somebody for you all to hate. Right, and for you all to be mad at, and to, and to like, for you all to sort of like see as a common enemy or somebody that you can like go after, and that provides your group with a certain amount of capital and momentum and energy to do the things that you're doing. Um, a group that doesn't have a target can seem disorganized. If it's not, if you're disorganized, if you're not angry at something, it's harder to get people's attention when there's so much noise and not enough signal. And really, people just want to look at pictures of pugs and corgis, and and that would really be better for everyone. But you need people to care about your thing. Oftentimes, that's for good reasons. Maybe it's not. Whatever. The point is that when you're telling, so when the person's like, "I want the cigarettes," and the person's like, "You're a waste and you're a terrible person," that person's being a jerk. When you're saying, "Check." your privilege to the second person, on one hand, you're, tr- you're maybe you're helping the first person. But what you really do is creating a target. 
right? And you're creating an easy target. And what I'm saying is I think that Sam Adams probably recognized that by staying as a sponsor of the St. Patrick's Day Parade, they made themselves an easy target for the aerobics of derision. For, the, for this sort of like, it's exact same thing. It's this idea of only God can judge me, right? It's like people, I know, I knew when I couldn't get into my apartment because my key didn't work, that if I told it to, told it to people, and, and they would assume that I'd forgotten my keys or that I would be judged for forgetting my keys. And it's not necessarily my fault that, I, that the key, that door didn't work, right? But I knew that this is the kind of behavior that could potentially lead to me spending my lose my keys points. And in the same way, I think Sam Adams knew that by continuing to sponsor this parade, even if they walked the line and even if they offset it with things that were positive for the LGBT community, they could be making themselves a target for other people's judgment. Right. Right. And, and this is, again, the acrobatics of derision come into play. And, and it's not just from the perspective of the person who ends up being judged. It's also to the benefit of the judger. That's, I guess, the third dimension that we haven't really talked about is what do you gain from judging someone else, from from being arrogated, from having the authority arrogated to you to judge someone else's social behavior? Um, you know, what benefit do you get? This is like the gotcha media, right? It's like, you know, which is why does the media go out and try to get politicians to say stupid things and say things that are hypocritical or say things that are obviously amoral? Yeah, you're right. Stuff. It sort of follow the money down the butt crack, right? Yeah, I mean the whole uh, the whole mechanism of the for- of the power of the fourth estate is based around these incentives of the power you get from standing in discursive judgment over someone else, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it led to the resignation of Nixon and a bunch of other stuff, right? Like, it's not necessarily always a bad influence, but it's something that can be frustrating if you're if you think you have an idea of how the things around you are being controlled. Um, and like, if you think that we're all going to be nice to each other and thus no one's going to go on Reddit with 20 pictures of butt cracks, right? Like then you're unaware of kind of certain dynamics of how people can stand in judgment over people based just off the discourse, not off of the sort of social arrangements and power arrangements and even the mutual interests that are, that are shared among specific groups of people, right? Like, um, Josh, that's tying together a lot of stuff. I just got to figure out how to tie the Elizabeth Moss Mario Kart movie into all of it, and it'll all, it all come together. <laughs> right. But does that make sense? You know what I'm talking about with all that stuff? The, yeah, I, uh, I do. Um, I do, especially, especially sort of the value, the value of, of finding a target and that um, – and, and also sort of the value of – I mean, the value of sort of – the value – I don't know. I'm, I stand up for shock value, right? Like the value of using a certain amount of rhetorical shock to, uh, to correct or to point out anyway a, a perceived injustice that is going sort of un – um, unredressed, right? Uh, the, the the thing that I I'm wary of is is that now <laughs> um, the thing that I'm wary of is that is that the claims the claims are so are so similar, right? The claim of of you know that's fat shaming or or check check your privilege, right? Like. It presumes a privilege. Well, right, exactly, yeah. and 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 that's that's the thing, right? Like, and and this is so tricky because you can't get out of um, you can't get out of the idea that 
just just living in the world and kind of conducting yourself in a certain way and seeing things and thinking your thoughts about them necessarily implies recourse to uh, a set of normative claims about how things ought to be, right? About what good is in the world, right? And you know uh, the 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 um, what what you're saying. When when you when you say that's fat shaming or, or when you say that that's uh, you know check your privilege or whatever you're saying is that my, my set of normative claims are superior to yours, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's uncomfortable. And when you do that in discursive space, right? Uh, creating a target so that you know your right thinking progressive friends like me and Pete can pile mm-hmm. on, right? You're you're ganging up on. You're ganging up on someone, right? And, and like, I and it's sort of it's it's happened a couple times where where just the dynamics of something ha- has has made me uncomfortable because there are all there are all kinds of of ganging ups uh, happening, right? Like mm-hmm. it's happening uh, with it happened with. Um, uh, the is Lord racist uh, right whole whole discourse and I I don't understand the virtue in ganging up on a seventeen year old uh, you I know mean, what I mean and, na- and name calling her right I, re- I really th- I really think the question that comes up is do we think this person deserves to be ganged up on right and I think that's really what the, what question is being posed by that sort of statement and and I think sometimes the answer feels a lot like yes but i think what you're also you're also speaking from a place of sort of personal well-being health and generally being nice to people right as opposed to a way of like you know actually like these sort of fixation with winning internet arguments that possesses everybody and, sure yeah yeah um, or some somebody is wrong on the somebody is wrong on the internet you know right I mean? right 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 so i mean i think that um so I, I see what you mean i definitely see what you mean and i definitely think that um that it is a bit generous to presume that even most people who leave these sorts of things aren't aware that they're ganging up on somebody. I think a lot of the time it's like, no, I hate that person. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, and I and I'm justified, right? And my ganging yeah. up my ganging up is right because yeah. it's motivated by my my laudable political convictions. Or it's yeah. it's loaded it's it's motivated by my desire to redress wrongs. Right? Yeah. And I I mean, but I, I just I, I w- wonder how often that contorts you into a position where you are, to steal another phrase from Merlin Mann, trying to legislate a change of heart in everybody but yourself. You know, where, where, and that is that where that sort of imperial, that sort of discursively imperialist urge is, um, is actually at play because your values are better. You know, yeah. and your values are are more more laudable politically, are more inclusive, are more you know whatever. All these things that I that that I would I would recognize as as good. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't watch you know mainstream news or or any political news, whatever, Pete, because it it just completely f's up my serenity, right? Like I cannot. Uh, I, I sort of cannot function. I would stomp around mad at the world twenty four hours a day. You know, mm-hmm. I would I would be kept up at night, right? I mean, speaking as someone who's kept up at night and can't function, stomps <laughs> around like a maniac twenty four hours a day. I can confirm all of these things. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and and, you know, <laughs> and and yet the 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 I I recognize the the flaw in my solution, right? Because I'm not making anything better by by more or less opting out. You know, yeah. um, I mean. It's 
it's, it's the same thing as the only God can judge me, which is that you don't get out of the circle by criticizing the circle. But 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 what? Right, exactly. Yeah, you're still you're still there. You're still there in in the circle, whether you think it's a good circle or a bad circle. I mean, the 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 answer, of course, is overthinking it. Right. <laughs> well, and, yeah, yeah. And I'm actually, and I, I'm not joking. Like my answer, and I, I think yours too, Pete. And the, the um, uh, because of some of the things you've said about the motivation behind overthinking it, and and your mission on overthinking it, which is like I am not diminished by the things I like and choose to care about. You yes. know, um, is is that uh, <laughs> um, we we try to create a place uh, together where the community can come, to, where where a community of of uh, good people with differences, of honorable people who may disagree about any number of things, can come together and and uh, enjoy what is what there is to enjoy about life you know and and sort of examine it in a way that in a way that gives pleasure and even some of the contention on overthinking it i think ultimately gives pleasure um because it's it's between uh it happens among uh, among people who are my friends or whom i respect yeah i i think it's god a little- that was a bunch of ass kissing <laughs> that was a bunch of pandering to the pit there yeah. It's the answer is always love, man. <laughs> like I mean, yeah, not in, not in so the I'll tell you here's a question that the answer is not love for, which is, you know, how should RoboCop break out of his mind control? Like the lo- the power of love is not the answer to that question. <laughs> um, but uh but no, I mean, I it isn't, you know, when you say the answer you all, we also have to know kind of what the question is, and there's a whole bunch of different questions. Right, right, and there is right, and there is no, there is no the answer. Right, there, there is just sort of, um, uh, there is just more engagement with the problem. Yeah, I mean, what, for example, you know, I've had a lot of heated discussions about the St. Patrick's Day issue. Um, you know, actually, one big heated discussion, which was very unfortunate on Facebook, that I don't encourage anyone to look up because some people were behaving very poorly in it, um, but. I mean, one thing that came up is like, well, where's Macklemore and all this? <laughs> right? like, like, it's like, well, look, one answer is, what are the points of connection? Like, what are the points of connection between the people who aren't getting along? And, you know, what are the places for mutual understanding? Like, like actually, I mean, that's actually, it's funny because I'm hearing words come out of my mouth that I, that I heard said to me at like a working with difficult colleagues seminar at work, right? Where it's like, when you're working, how do you, how do you work together with people that you sometimes have problems with? And it's like, well, what is your what is your common ground like what is it that you do have in common that you can reach for and and how can you find some sort of basis for common understanding with what's happening um and of course then the answer is well the question then becomes like you know well what about this person we want to gang up on that we hate and and you know then that's a really tough question because it's like can you really can you really hate no one can you really have malice toward none do you really have the courage to go out there in the world and turn the other cheek I mean, I know it's very fashionable these days to be, like, very, you know, cynical and a-religious about things. And I'm not saying that it's a motivation is supernatural here. But, like, there is a certain wisdom to, like, the, the challenge of forgiveness in the world. And it's, it's one that's um, – and it's not religious. I shouldn't even brought up the fact that it's religious except it's inextricable from that particular discourse and message. But this, this idea of, like, what does it really mean to go out into a world where there are necessary battles happening – and to not take up arms, but instead to try to meet people with like positivity and love about things that you care about and you think are important. Yes, and on and on the other hand, not get all Pollyanna-ish and Buzzfeedy yeah. with the no haters. Oh, you know, uh, yeah. when 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 you know legitimate contention does arise. Yeah, and not presume.
assume for yourself a superiority also to the people who get involved in arguments over petty things, because I sure as heck get in arguments about petty things. I argue about this stuff all the time. I mean, I recognize what the problems are that you're talking about, but that doesn't mean I'm not a huge part of them, right? Like, I had a yeah, oh, sure. once who said that if, if, everybody, <laughs> if, if everybody who was a hypocrite, like, invalidated their participation – Right. If everyone who is a who is a who is a hypocrite stopped doing stopped speaking up, then like nobody would speak. Right. Like that's one of the big challenges. Right. Is that like <laughs> right? Sure. First they came for the hypocrites, uh, and, but, but and I then, didn't speak up because I wasn't a hypocrite. <laughs> and then and then they came for me, and nobody was left at all. Yes. <laughs> yeah. First they first they came for the yeah first they came for the hypocrites, and then you know and then they were all themselves locked up in their own dungeons. Right. Right. Like um. But yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because it, I mean that the answer is just that the, the the snake keeps eating its own tail, and the discourses of power don't stop for nobody, uh, and, and these sorts of things are the way that these sorts of problems are adjudicated. And and the question, one of the big questions to ask is, you know, what do you do to make yourself happy and lead a good life? Like that's a, that's a that's a good question. That's a good way of I think addressing the issue, which is how do we define ethics? Right, like there's one way of looking at ethics where it's there's this idea of the good, or how do we look at the good within ethics? Right, is the good kind of a rubric for proper participation in the the act of collective living? Right, like is is there is there in the good um, a, you know an inherent responsibility to others? Is is the good like a sort of way of scoring points on a meter that's going to be read by some sort of external viewer? Right, basically about consequentialist. Is it consequentialist with the beneficiary being like the people around you? Right, um, or is also is the good about your own life and how you lead your own life? Right, and and a lot of ethical systems get to a very convenient place where it just so happens that the things that make you happy are also good for the people around you. Um, and in that way, I think they often fall short of the cruel realities of the world. Yeah, got although, it. I, lo- I love it when a plan comes together. Exactly. Well, although I don't think that Aristotle was ignorant of the cruel realities of the world, which is why he said nobody should even talk about ethics until they're 40. Because right? he's like, none of you guys know. You know like, and he could have upped that to 60, 70, or 80, you know, or just ever. And, you know, it's like, uh, you don't know when you're 20, man, what's right and what's wrong. Um, but yeah, just the idea that having a sort of even the virtue ethic of having like sort of a moderate degree of righteous indignation is going to like make you a happy and fulfilled person, right? Like, and that's the reason why you should do it, not because the world requires justice, but because it's good for you, right? And that's that's an interesting way of looking at it, because um, that's what I think that's part of what you're saying is that the problem of what to do about good in the world is also related about the problem of what to do to good with for good for to yourself. And while someone might say, "Oh, that's selfish." Oh, we have more of a of a look at a Kantian aspect of if it is benefiting you, then we can't know that it's right, right? Like because the only things that we know are right are the things that benefit others and not us, like you know duty and such, um, like a duty ethic. But it all, it all I think it comes together. I think that's a really a big part of what we're talking about, which is who is the beneficiary of the good, um, and 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 who do we care about, um, and who are we really serving? But then I guess then the snake just keeps eating its own tail because it's like, well, I serve other people. Well, why are you doing it? Are you serving yourself or other people? I'm serving other people. Why are you doing that? Are you doing, you know, and so on. At some point, there's a personal gratification that happens. Um, it's, 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 I mean, I don't know. I have problems with consequentialism because of just the issue of subjectivity is this looms so large. You know, it's so, it's so impossible to extricate yourself and your own 
you know, the, the, the eyeballs from behind which you view what's going on, right? Like, it's so hard to extricate that from ethical and moral problems. Um, and yet it is done so just brusquely and without hesitation by so many people um, that it, is, it becomes a bit frustrating. It's hard to extricate yourself from a podcast as well. Uh, you know, if only we could sufficiently accelerate to a degree that our Ferrari might carry us into the sunset. <laughs> you might even say that we have a requirement for jerk. <laughs> or even a need for speed. Uh, we'll be back um, for further engagement with the problem uh, next week on uh, on this podcast. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Who you calling a jerk? <laughs> hey, hey, Jesse. Yeah. Hey, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. Apply yourself. <laughs>